0: This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're fortunate to have Louie McCurley on. Louie is the CEO of Pigeon Mountain Industries. She's recognized for expertise in high-angle safety, rescue, and rope access. Louie has more than three decades of experience in safety and rescue, including alpine, industrial, fall protection, fire, EMS, municipal, adventure racing, and recreational environments. Louie is a published author and a frequent presenter and instructor. She has authored numerous articles and texts on the subject of rescue, rope access, and safety at height. Her specialties are rescue, fall protection, high angle, PPE, work at height, safety at height, general industry rescue, rescue after a fall, rope access, municipal rescue, rescue equipment, post-fall rescue, safety planning, mountain rescue, life safety rope and equipment, and standards for work at height. Louis, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Bob. It's really nice to be here. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: You know, we're, we're sitting here at the Denver office of Pigeon Mountain Industries, and it's an older building with extremely high ceilings. And so for those of you that are fortunate enough to see a video clip of this, you will see people in the background going up and down in a training course that's hosted here at this building. Louis, tell us a little bit about your business and the clients you serve.
1: I work at the coolest company on earth. Actually, PMI is a manufacturer of life safety ropes and soft goods, other equipment for work at height. And we also distribute other gear from people whose products complement our own. So we're a manufacturer and distributor as well as an educator. So the people you see behind me actually up there on rope, those are all rope access technicians learning to use the equipment that we manufacture and learning to use it correctly and safely.
0: For the folks that you know don't know much about ropes and don't really get it. Um, can you walk us through how Pigeon Mountain Industries started and got in the rope business?
1: Absolutely. We started down in Georgia, in the heart of what we call TAG, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, TAG caving area. So the most of the caves in the United States are centered right in that region, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, where they all come together there in the corner. And the founders of our company were all cavers. And they wanted a better caving rope to go caving with. So they literally bought a rope machine and stuck it in some guy's garage and started making rope for themselves and their friends. That was the foundations of PMI back in the early 1970s. And they did that for a number of years. And at one point in the mid-70s, there was an article, actually it was the late 70s, I think it might have been 1978 or so, an article came out. There was an accident, Uh, tragically, in New York City. Some firefighters used a rope that was never intended for life safety, and they plunged to their death. And a white paper came out as a result of that accident. And in the white paper it said, if these guys had been using a proper rope, such as, and, PMI, was one of the few companies that were named as a manufacturer of proper life safety rope. Now remember, these guys are like manufacturing rope in their their buddy's garage, right? And so they went from literally overnight making rope, a couple of spools of rope a month for friends and family, to suddenly having years worth of back orders for life safety ropes for rescuers. So... PMI grew rather rapidly in those days, uh, focusing primarily on the newfangled kernmantle version of life safety rope.
0: And so there's a term, you know, for, for me, my experience was military and the military green ropes that we used, and they didn't have the fancy sheath ropes. And so for the folks out there that are, are thinking about their experience with ropes, there's the polypropylene rope that maybe we know and see at the hardware store. You know, there's the nylon rope that's sold in mm-hmm. bundles in there, and then the military ropes that I grew up with are the ones that would stretch a lot. Yep. And then there are the ropes that you guys developed. Talk a little bit about how that rope is built or functions.
1: So the three-strand laid ropes that we started with back in the day, um, green line, gold line, uh, they were laid stranded ropes. And that's there's still a lot of commodity ropes that are made that way these days. They're really just three strands that are twisted together for however long you want them to be twisted together. And... As you pull on those ropes, there's a mechanical unwinding of the three strands and that gives them stretch. The other thing that gives them stretch is whatever they're made of. So nylon, which is mm-hmm. the most or polypropylene, but especially nylon, um, is one of the more common life safety materials. And as you pull on nylon, it also has stretch. So a nylon rope made out of a three strand material, a three strand design is actually going to have a whole lot of strength, both mechanical and just inherent to the material. What we do is called a Kern mantle rope. Kern mantle is a German term, and it stands, it, it, it means core and sheath. So the Kern is the core and the mantle is the sheath. So a Kern mantle rope is, is, really is several strands or braid, braided strands or straight strands of rope inside, collected inside of an outer sheath. And the two are really independent of one another. And the cool thing about that is, is that depending on how much twist or what you do to the design on the inside of the rope, you can really control, like you can really engineer exactly how much elongation you want to happen and at what force and at what range. Um, You can can control the performance of the rope really tightly. Whereas with a, a laid rope, every rope or every strand of that rope is exposed to the outside at some point. So there's additional hazard with the rope as far as being um, damageable uh, over an edge or somebody stepping on it or whatever. Um, so so there's a lot more control and, and there's a lot more inherent safety in a current mantle rope.
0: You know, and, and I'm looking out the window and you guys, you know, some of it you can see and there's God knows how many different ropes of multiple <laughs> colors <laughs> hang, hanging <laughs> off the ceiling. And is there any... In, in when you look at a rope of a particular color, is it really telling you anything or does it just happen to be the color?
1: It just happens to be the color typically, although an organization like the rescue team that I'm on, we we will color code ropes and so we'll use different colors for different purposes. Um, some people will use different colors. They'll buy all blue ropes one year and all red ropes the next year and all yellow ropes the year after that so they know when they went into service. So different people, or they'll put different, um, they'll put blue ropes on this truck and red ropes on that truck so they know where everything belongs belongs so people use color to color code for their own purposes but when you look at a rope um, just visually you really can't tell what's special mm-hmm. about it from the outside now that said that's because there's so many different manufacturers I can tell you from the outside of my ropes what they all mean so all of my ropes actually have a meaning in the way that they're designed um, the, the direction that the barber pole Runs on the ones that have stripes that go down them. Um, the pattern of it, if there's an X pattern, that in our company, mm-hmm. that's a polyester. It's got polyester in that rope. Uh, but that's just within PMI.
0: In thinking about this, and before we go too far, if people want to reach out to Pigeon Mountain Industries, what's the best way for them to reach out to you or your company? What social media do they go through?
1: You know, we have both Facebook and LinkedIn, um, as well as some of the other social media. Uh, we, we have presence on most of the social media sites, including LinkedIn and Facebook and, and others. Uh, we also have a website, www.pmirope.com, and our phone number is 1-800-282-ROPE.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How'd that happen? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it may seem for some of the folks going, how in the world did you get involved with a rope company? So take well, us to Well, I fell off a s-
1: cliff. <laughs> Isn't
0: that how everybody gets involved? You know, we, we talked about this before the show. And so, you know, you have this event. So for the folks, you know, who are going like, what in the world? Take us to the event and take us to the thought process, you know, either during the event or post the event caused you to go down this road?
1: You know, it's interesting. I um, I really did fall off a cliff. I fell about 40 feet off of a cliff, and I, I lived to tell about it, as you can see. I'm, we're sitting here having this conversation. Um, but it wasn't an, until a few years later uh, that I actually joined a local mountain rescue team. Falling off the cliff brought my awareness to the fact that I was lucky to be alive and Mm. that I was really stupid about what I'd done. I needed more information. I needed more knowledge. Were you climbing or did you- I was not. I was just recreationally out for a hike and I decided to split off from the rest of my group and take a shortcut back to the car. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I beat them back to the car.
0: (laughs) You took the elevator down.
1: I did. I did. (laughs) And, um, and, and so- so when you have an experience like that, um, it, it really kind of wakes you up as far as, as far as I'm not the only person in the world, and my life is just but a flash. It can, it can be over as quick as that. And so because of that, I ended up searching out Alpine Rescue Team and became a member of Alpine Rescue Team in Colorado um, in 1985, actually and have been working with Alpine Rescue ever since. And that's really where I got a lot of my uh, love for rope to begin with.
0: You know, I I think about post the event and you go to the meeting with Mountain Rescue, Alpine Mountain Rescue, and said, all right, we're gonna go train. So talk to us a little bit about the first time you're standing on the edge of a cliff with rope. What was that like for you? (laughs)
1: You know, I, I always say that, that having a little bit of fear is not necessarily a bad thing. A, a healthy fear is what keeps you alive, whether you're crossing a street or standing at the top of a cliff. And yet when you have a rope, when you have equipment and gear connected to you and you understand how that equipment works and how that equipment is used, there's just something about... Um, it's, it's, it's a security mm-hmm. that you know what you're capable of. You know what your limitations are. You know what the limitations of your gear is. And it gives you so much more opportunity to do what you need to do because you know what your boundaries are. You know where those, those sideboards are that you can bounce off of.
0: Yeah, I think back to, I've done a little road work myself like we talked about. Yeah. So you, you're down the face of whatever you're training on and you get to the bottom. What would you feel like?
1: At that point, it, it was when we train, with, whether it's with Alpine or here, we don't put ourselves in a very hazardous predicament to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's all very progressive. So you work on a low slope and a low angle and close to the ground until you get a little more knowledge and capability and skill. Mm-hmm. And then you go up a notch and up a notch and up a notch. And, and it's really not until way after you end up someplace that you go, whoa, I did that. Yeah. I can do that. And you've been so, I don't know, it's just, it, it takes such time. And over time, you gain that confidence and that you gain those skills. And by the time you end up doing something really big, it's kind of no big deal.
0: You've, you've arrived.
1: Yeah, kind of. It's, it's like, you know, I, I, I know how to do that. I'm okay with that.
0: For you in, in confidence building, not knowing you before you fell off a cliff, before, and then after, with your skills and your training what did that do for you confidence-wise?
1: I think it knocked me down a notch, to be quite honest. I've always been fairly confident. I've always been a person that has that, that is quick to jump. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had older brothers, and, and they were quite a bit older than me, and so I followed them everywhere <laughs> they went, and mm-hmm. And they didn't want me around, so they went really difficult places, and I had to keep up. And And so it, it never fazed me. I was like, oh, yeah, I can do that. Oh, yeah, I can mm-hmm. do that. Oh, yeah, I can do that. And then I fell off a cliff, oh. I couldn't do that. <laughs> Oops! My flight, my flight skills are limited. Yes, that's right. And and so it it really kind of chopped my legs out from under me and said, so, you know, it's like, oh wow, you you're not invincible. You're there. There are limitations, and and you do need education. You can't just jump into something and be good at it or figure it out as you go. You you really do need some some knowledge sharing and, and information.
0: Kind of taking a different tack. We talked before and you mentioned that your journey to being the ceo and, and you mentioned that you went on a year round or for a one year trip and you were looking at other organizations right take us through that journey a little bit and then your evolution to the circumstance where you became ceo
1: you know the the alpine rescue team that i've worked with since 1985 We're very confident about what we do. And when we train, we train a certain way of doing things. And so when you go through that indoctrination, if you will, Mm -hmm. you begin to feel like this is the way that it's done. This is how you do rescue. And I... I enjoyed what I was doing. I was good with the ropes. I was good with rigging. And as a result of of that participation with Alpine, I was actually invited to go to Joshua tree national monument. It's a park now, but at the time it was a monument to do a a class for the park service as an instructor. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. That's uh, yeah, it'll be fun. And so I went to be an assistant instructor at this class and they were doing things. They were doing things wrong. They weren't doing things my way. Mm -hmm. And it it made me realize that that there are a lot of right ways to do things. And that was a huge eye-opener for me. And so a short time later, I got the opportunity to travel with a friend who was also very much into rescue, and we went around the world stopping at different rescue organizations along the way. So we went um, everywhere from Australia and New Zealand up through Southeast Asia, um, across India into Europe, into England and Scotland, stopping and visiting with rescue organizations wherever we possibly could and and training with them in some cases. And, And that for me was so enlightening because I had come from this place of this is the way you do it to well, this is the way you do it, and this is the way you do it, and this is the way you do it, and, you know, all of those are right. All of those are okay because they fit your circumstances and they fit your gear and they fit your needs wherever it is you might be. And and so having that opportunity to to see different ways of doing things, it it was after that that I joined PMI. And it really gave me more insight as I joined PMI and as I, I was asked to do different jobs in PMI it, it It opened up my world that no, I don't know everything and I don't know how to do everything, but that's okay because there's a lot of right ways to do things. So pay attention, learn from the people around you, and try it, step out and try it and and you can do anything.
0: You went on a lot of standards committees in to, in the industry. Talk a little bit about that effort and what you think the, the byproduct of that effort was or is?
1: That's a, that's a great question. Um, when I first joined PMI, I, I was running a little nonprofit research and testing lab. We, we did research and testing on... Rope systems for people who are in the field. We um, complemented what the manufacturers were already doing, and and m- my gift was kind of translating in that that to, to real language that that users that made sense to users in the field from a, a, a rigging standpoint. And um, when I first came to PMI, it was as a consultant. They actually hired me to sit on standards committees and uh, just lend perspective. You know, this is, this is some of the things we need to think about as we're writing standards. We can't just write them as a manufacturer. We mm-hmm. we have to consider the needs of the user and not just of that user, but of this user and this user. And, um, and so sitting on those, those standards committees was an interesting challenge for me because the whole concept of a standard is to standardize. Mm -hmm. It's to say, this is the way to do it, Mm -hmm. this is one way. This is not not one of many ways, this is the way. And and so I'm the original anti-standards person. I'm really opposed to the concept of methodology standards um, and limiting how people apply their, their, their trade or their technique. It's, to me, it's much more important to standardize their training and to make sure that they're well-grounded and well-rounded in knowledge and then turn them loose to, to do what they do and let them do it well. So sitting on all these different standards um, committees, at first I, it was kind of under duress. It was sort of like, yeah, okay, it's a, it's a contracting job. I guess I'll, I'll do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I got to sit on the NFPA 1983 was was one of the first standards that I sat on. And it was a bunch of fire chiefs, basically. NFPA. National Fire Protection uh, Association. Okay. NFPA, National Fire Protection Association. And their um, standard number, 1983, is the standard that uh, regulates the ropes and carabiners and harnesses and and all the stuff that's used to do what those guys do. Mm -hmm. And so when I first got onto the committee, for example, one of the things that was written into the standard in the instructions, manufacturers had to write, this rope must be discarded after use. Well, you and I both know that you can use a rope over and over and over again if you're competent and inspect it um, and determine that it's safe for use. And so so there are a lot of things like that that were written into the standard that just didn't make sense from a practical point of view. Mm -hmm. And so sitting on that standards committee gave me the opportunity to to address some of those, those kinds of issues. Sitting on that standards committee opened up an opportunity to sit on another standards committee and um, and another and another. And eventually I ended up sitting on uh, the American National Standards Institute, um, a, A10, A Z359, a variety of... And, and part of my mission there now has been, I'm still kind of anti-standards, just for the record, <laughs> at least from a user standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but for equipment, when I say a rope is... 9,000 pounds. You want to know what that, is that an average? Is that a minimum breaking strength? Is that the highest I've ever seen it break at? What number is that? Mm-hmm. And what number am I reporting as compared with what number my, com- my competitor is reporting? Mm-hmm. We need some consistency in, in those standards. Mm-hmm. So so sitting on the different standards councils and organizations, um, part of my mission has been to try to have similar test methods for repeatability so that we're not having to test it 10 different ways to come up with the same answer. Um, If we can standardize things like, um, you know, the drums that we wrap the the ends of the rope around to the rate of pull to uh, just all the details, how we do the the instrumentation and the, the data collection, if we can standardize that stuff, it provides you, the user, with more consistent knowledge, and it provides me, the manufacturer, with a single test instead of 16 tests so I don't have to charge you as much.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think about as a company, and so they have you out on the various standards committees, with the benefit of hindsight being on all those committees and you're still on them, what value did that bring back to the company from your efforts?
1: You know, we ask that question as a company every single year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there is that, yeah.
1: Um, there's, there's a lot of expense associated with it, mm-hmm. and and none of my competitors do it to the same level that PMI does. There's nobody else out there in the industry that's as involved in the standards and, and industry organizations at the level that PMI is. Um, but what, what we feel is that by serving the industry and keeping the industry safe and keeping the industry doing things in a, in a re- reliable and consistent manner, if we can keep the safety of ropes and rope-based techniques like rope access and r- rope-based rescue, if we can keep that safety record up here, then ropes aren't going to get legislated out of existence. So we're protecting the industry, if you will. We're also protecting the, the image of the industry. Um, when you see certain, and I'm not going to mention any in particular, but there are certain industries that you think, oh yeah, that one's dangerous. Well, you think that because, because people fall and get hurt in those industries a lot. We got to stop that. Because when people fall and get hurt in those industries, it, it diminishes that industry in the sight of the general public, it it makes mm-hmm. it it, and it doesn't have to be that way. It can be safer. There are safer ways to do things. So we, if we can if we can influence that in some way, then we're in effect we're protecting our market.
0: You know, as as we're talking about standards and in, in some of the technical aspects of robes, you know, for some of the folks, what are some of the most prevalent industries? That they may may not that you're aware of that maybe the average person is not, where ropes are used regularly.
1: People when when they see ropes, when when I meet somebody and I've got, you know, I'm carrying a rope under my arm for a customer or get on an airplane and I'm going somewhere um, to speak at a conference about rope, everybody immediately thinks climbing and mountaineering. Climbing and mountaineering ropes are very different from any other rope out there. The ropes that you see in a climbing gym are different from the ropes that you'll typically see out on the crag. So there's a lot of different performance specifications for ropes. What's a crag? A, a rock, a, okay, sure. a, a rock face, okay, a, sure. um, yeah, like, yeah, any, any kind of a climbing area where people mm-hmm. go to recreational climb. So when you, when you see people um, climbing on those kinds of ropes, they're different from the ropes that you see the local fire department using to rescue those people when they fall, or they're different from the ropes that you see the local Alpine rescue team using to lower somebody down after an avalanche, or they're different from the ropes that you see somebody using on the side of a building, um, to do window cleaning or uh, a wind turbine so so there's lots of different kinds of ropes in different industries and so when you say what kind of industries use rope Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different industries but the ropes that they use are quite different
0: you know we were talking before you know like we're here about the infrastructure in this country a lot
1: that's right and
0: you were talking about the use for people that inspect bridges underneath with rope work and we were out in the open area here and you have Devices for I-beam tie-off. We do. Yeah. You know, and, and I think about for a lot of the folks, you know, when I wish they were here, you know, because they could enjoy the eye candy of all the equipment <laughs> and ropes and, and all the stuff that's going on. You transitioned from basically being a contractor, then you were the chief operating officer, and then you became the CEO. And the CEO was, you became CEO after the death of the current CEO. I did. And I I think about for other folks that may be faced with the challenge of coming in to an organization, uh, maybe not necessarily prepared to be the CEO, and all of a sudden you are. Walk us through that thought process when you said, this is what I'm going to be doing, and basically first day in, what do you do?
1: There is nothing on earth that can ever prepare you for the loss of a friend, and there is nothing on earth that can ever prepare you for leaping into a job that your best friend held. And so, so that is that there's, there's no amount of advice that I think I could ever give for, here's how to prepare yourself in, in the event that that happens. And, and you look at, you know, Oh, well you should have secession plans and should, yes, you should have all of those mm-hmm. things. All of those things are great. But at the, at the moment when it occurs, it's like all of the air is sucked out of the room and, and you're, you're suddenly, your whole world has changed from focusing on, for me, it was focusing on the technical and the sales and marketing and all of the, you know, it was all very airy-fairy, really fun stuff, to suddenly now being responsible for the outcome of the company and for the lives of all of these people who work for us. And, and so that, that weight initially was devastating for me it was just it was such a burden to realize that that now these employees who all have families it's not just it's you not anymore. Just me anymore and and i'm where the buck stops and so so that was a really big deal for me and it, it actually took me a little while to mm-hmm. to process um on on a bigger front Steve Steve had become a friend. I mean, we now worked Steve, together. And Steve Steve was the previous Steve was the previous He's the founder. He, he was one of the founders. Yeah, okay. the company was actually founded by three caving buddies. And he was the last man standing. <laughs> so <laughs> So he was he was the, the president and CEO of the company. And he was an avid rope user himself. He was a caver. He was um, the deputy director of emergency services in Walker County, Georgia. He was a fire chief. He was he was just he was very much embodied the whole purpose of, of our company. Um, and that really set the tone for who PMI is. Just the fact that Steve himself was not just a guy sitting behind a desk pushing paper or, or filling out spreadsheets or making fancy products. He went out there and used the products and, and was making a product that he was not only proud to make, but that he was proud and felt safe using Mm -hmm. that set the tone for who we would be forever. Um, so many of the, the people here in PMI Denver, probably three quarters of us here in Denver are all on rescue teams or are uh, actually every single one of us is either on a rescue team or is a certified rope access technician or as a climber mountaineer or as a caver or all of the above. So everybody here is is invested in what we do. And Steve set that precedent. It's the same in Georgia. Um, probably half the people in Georgia are are either climbers or cavers or rescue people or rope access people. And, and they too are invested in the products that we make. And when you live the lifestyle of the company that you work with it's it's not the transition isn't a it's not a very big step to step from home into the office and back again and and likewise um, stepping into into steve's role, he had been really forward thinking in, in his development of the company. He had actually built a team of people in PMI. He had structured us so that we had a um, what we called a vision and accountability team. And the vision and accountability team has representatives from different departments who would come together periodically to just talk about what's working, what's not working, what we need to change uh, in, in different departments and aspects of the company. So, so he set a precedent of communication and collaboration right from the get-go. You know, you, you know I think
0: about in the death of a friend or a loved one. I mean, there's no right way to get past that point. And it, it, you, get, you put it away however you put it away. But I think about you know, the committee and the, the progress on vision that you were doing accountability. So let's say that you just finished a vision and an accountability, and there was a number of topics that you wanted to address. Who prioritized what was first, what was second, and how did you track accomplishment of those particular goals?
1: Typically, Steve would do that. So Mm -hmm. typically, Steve would would prioritize. He um, He was president, and I was vice president, and then we had several people who were department heads and so um so he he and i would collaborate a lot and he would say you know okay well we're going to do this first and then i would go make it happen Mm -hmm. Um, and when we when we divided our efforts, because we have a Denver office and a Georgia office, Steve was largely responsible for the Georgia office, and he took care of pretty much all things operations. So um, the manufacturing, the shipping and receiving, the warehousing, the, uh, just kind of how the nuts and bolts of the company, how things function together. And the Denver office is primarily a sales and marketing and technical office, where we also have training, obviously. Um, yeah, the guy <laughs> just went by the window. He's,
0: he's going from left to right in a, in a seat. And, yeah. And
1: that's awesome because that's the that's the the foundation of rope access is that ability to not just go down, not it's not just rappelling. You can go down, you can go up, you can go cross crossways, you can go from one set of ropes to another. That's that's huge in rope access, and it's the foundation of that's what makes it safe is the ability to do all those different things and get yourself out of a, a potential pickle.
0: You know, as as you look back over your, your years with PMI and between you and Steve running the company, what do you think? Was the smartest thing that you ever saw him do?
1: Oh my goodness! He he was so innovative. He was he was way ahead of his time in so many things. We uh, I, I, I was a telecommuter in 1992, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we had Compuserve and fax machines. It was it was not easy to telecommute in those days. Mm-hmm. And he hired a telecommuter. He put computer management systems into our operations very early on. Um, he was an early adopter of the ISO quality assurance standards. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so for me, the, the thing that, that I learned from Steve and that I really think was, was part of the, the, the legacy that he left was not being afraid to, to reach up and reach out a little bit farther than, than you think you can go. Mm-hmm. And and do it right. I don't care if we're a small company. Let's get a computer system that allows us to correspond our, our orders with our manufacturing and our warehousing and tie all that stuff together so that we can actually keep up with things. That that was Steve, and that was that was done so so far. I was, we were still on C prompt stuff. I mean, when he did that, it was mm-hmm. not it was not easy, but but it was the right thing to do, and I think that's the bottom line.
0: You know, and, and being an early adopter has risks and rewards. It does. You know, and you think about what do you think was the driving force that made him an early adopter? Any idea?
1: He was a person who who struggled with a lot of things in his early life. He he struggled with um, some learning disabilities and some just some personal challenges that that he had to overcome. And and I think that realizing that he could, could overcome those things and not only overcome, but excel in doing it, I think it made him realize the opportunity for success. It made him realize how you can't, if, if you let yourself be limited, you can be as limited as you want to be. But if you're willing to step out and reach a little bit, that you can expand, you can, you can grow. For a, a great example, um, it was in the mid-1990s, and when i first started working for pmi as i said i was a consultant and some of the other things that I did is I would go work on rope kind of like these guys, but there was in those days, no such thing as a certified rope access technician. It didn't exist. It was just like, Oh, you've got, you've got a rope. You climb on the weekends. Good. Can you remove this bird's nest for me? Or can you paint this, this underside of my deck for me? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so I I would do odd jobs and, and I do them hanging from rope. And one of the people that I ended up working with was a guy. He was an engineer in downtown Denver, and um, he w- did building inspections. And there are certain buildings in Denver that have to be expe- in, in every city that have to be inspected each year. And it's because of the way buildings are made; they they shift and erode and um, deteriorate just as everything in this world does. And um, <laughs> except and, you and I, <laughs> except you and I. That's yeah. right. We just get better. <laughs> So part of my job was I would go rappel down the sides of buildings and inspect and take pictures and, um, you know, putty things over and and things like that. And as a result of that experience, I became involved um, or aware of OSHA and how OSHA regulates and because of the way OSHA regulated in those days, we were allowed to repel or descend using um, a seat board, and, and we would we would sit on a wooden board, and the wooden board was connected to a descender, and then we would kind of crawl over the parapet of the building and slide down into the seat, sit down in it, and we'd have a dorsal dorsally attached fall protection system that attached onto our back so that in the event that we did fall, we would be left hanging turtled on the side of the building, but we wouldn't fall to, to our deaths. Um, this is very impractical. It's just absolutely ridiculous because it, um, it's, it's unsafe. You can't see this dorsal attachment to connect and disconnect. Um, being attached, sitting on a seat board that's attached to a descender is not nearly as secure as sitting in a harness that's attached to a descender. Um, So there's just a lot of things wrong with, with how we were doing things back then. And, and I was lamenting to Steve one day about you know how um, you know we have to do this because OSHA says this is how you have to do what they called at the time controlled descent, and um, it's not very practical and it's not very safe. And I'm being much safer when I go over to a friend's house and paint the underside of his deck. And and he said, well, what are you going to do about it? Right, what can I do about it? He said, well, you got to educate OSHA. How are you going to educate OSHA? So well there's there's a brand new organization in Europe at the time in England actually for that was attributed to rope access so they were developing these rope access methods and techniques and I said well we need this thing called rope access in the United States it's got it's got attachment directly to your harness and it's your backup system is attached to your your sternal attachment instead of your dorsal and it's 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 all the skills are are checked off and it's all skill-based and training-based and knowledge-based and and a third-party evaluator comes in at the end of your class and tests you to make sure you really know what you're doing we need that in the united states and he said okay we'll create it and i said on pmi time and he said sure So he let me use PMI time to send out letters and solicit feedback and and requests for people um, who I knew were doing the same kinds of stuff that I was doing and just ask them all, hey, if there was an organization that would certify you to do this kind of work so that we could all then educate the regulatory authorities to say there is a much safer way of doing this, would you be in? Would you be willing to do it? And the vast majority of them wrote back and said, yes. Mm-hmm. And it was all letters back then, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Snail mail. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, yeah. really. You know, the early 90s, that wasn't that long ago. But anyway, so I contacted the organization in, in England and said, hey, um, would you guys like to collaborate? And they were like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Here's kind of what we're doing over here, but I'm not sure it'll work for you guys. And And so... We sent out what they were doing over there and and it was very proscriptive at the time. It basically said, you know, you have to attach carabiner A to connector B and and do it this way. And the folks in the States were like, well, that won't work for my industry because, you know, we we have tall things here or we have the sides of buildings that are bigger than they have there or we have bridges that they don't have there or whatever. And so, so we said, well, how would you write it? So we wrote a standard. We ended up writing a standard that was at the time and still is actually called Safe Practices for Rope Access Work. And we formed a nonprofit organization called the Society of Professional Rope Access Technicians, SPRAT. So the Society of Professional Rope Access Technicians um, was literally born on my living room floor with papers scattered everywhere, making cross-out notes on on st- what would eventually become a standard. And and people joined in and balloted and, and voted and, and came together to have meetings to talk with, with nothing in it for them except mm-hmm. to keep people safe. And that was the mindset that drove Steve.
0: You know, I, I think about... You know, recognizing a problem, many recognize problems. They just don't do anything about them. Right. You know, and, and as you think about that transition from consultant to operating officer to CEO, and then you look at the standards and the disciplines from Steve, how do you think your work in alpine rescue at height, how do you think that's contributed to your, if you have a gift as a CEO, how do you think that's contributed?
1: In mountaineering and climbing and and in rescue, there isn't just one way to do things there's there's not just one right way you you have to be willing and able to think on your feet and you have to rely on the people around you there's there's no lone rangers um and and that's the same in a, in an organization, in a functioning, effective organization. You there there are no Lone Rangers. You have to be able to rely on the people around you. And and you have to be willing to try and try things a different way and be open to, to how you do things. And so for me, having that experience with Alpine Rescue Team and having that experience in climbing and mountaineering um, really lent itself to a style of just being in as a ceo there like i said there's nothing that could have ever prepared me for for doing what i'm doing now except doing it mm-hmm. and and trusting the people around me i have there, there are such amazing people in pmi the we, we have several employees that are over 20 year employees um, i think our average at pmi is over 10 years employee um lifespan or duration at pmi it's it's a very, very committed, tight group of people who really know their stuff, and that makes all the difference in the world.
0: For, for PMI, if you were to look out three to five years from now, do you see the opportunity for for the safety aspect of what you guys do is that is a mature industry or is it a growing industry
1: it's definitely a growing industry um this whole rope access thing that was birthed in the in the 1990s it's really now just becoming accepted it's really now just gaining acceptance by ANSI and OSHA and and regulatory bodies they're, they're just realizing that wow the safety record of these guys that work this way is stellar it's outstanding and and so as the acceptance grows the safety managers who have who, are, who have responsibility for operations in different places are using it more and more, and and the more they use it, the more they realize how much they can do. You can access points in stadiums that nobody's ever touched before. You can inspect the undersides of bridges that, as we know, the United States infrastructure is falling apart. So it, these bridges that have never ever been inspected ever are now able to be inspected um high tension towers th- that you need repairs you can inspect them with drones now that's great but what do you do when you find a missing bolt somebody's got to go up there and replace mm-hmm. it you've got to do something about it rope access guys can get there so so all of these aware this awareness and these realizations that wow we've never been able to get there before but we can do that now we can put some a human being we can actually put somebody there to do a task So so that's just beginning to blossom. Um, And and with it is the challenge on rescue teams and rescue services, because rescue services are used to rescuing people from where people have always gotten to, right? Mm -hmm. Catwalks, the tops of buildings, even the sides of buildings aren't too terribly bad. Um, But stadiums, you know, where people can get to in stadiums now and the kinds of without catwalks, we've never had to rescue anybody from that before. Um, the, The... Wind turbines. Wow. Oh, how do you rescue somebody off of a wind turbine? That's not something that's really all that easy to do. Um, rescuing people from from bridges and from the, the arches on bridges or from the undersides of a bridge. Oh, wow. That's new. How do we do that? So so really, there's a whole world kind of creating itself as rope access begins to really take form and take shape and the opportunities of, of putting people in complicated environments and, and getting them places, as they push those boundaries, rescuers are kind of having to chase to keep up to say, oh, what if I have to rescue him?
0: Mm-hmm. As I'm looking out the window here again in your office, <laughs> you know, and, and you have someone that comes in for the course here or courses. Mm-hmm. What do you think the, the chief transformation you see from the person pre-course And the person that comes through here after
1: they've graduated, what do you see? It's interesting. We get a lot of different people um, that come through the course. There's everybody from people who have been doing it for years and are very comfortable and adept on rope to people that have never tied a knot in their entire life and they have no idea what even to expect when they walk through the door Um, and and everything in between. So so there's some different kinds of things that happen. Um, For people that have never been on rope before, it's amazing it's so cool to watch them go through this transformation of they're used to their feet being on the ground and and that's how they get around is by walking on their feet and if they need to go up then they must use a ladder or they they have to use stairs or um and and to see them by the end of the week to be able to ascend rope traverse over to another rope um Turn backwards and and upside down and get across a a horizontal traverse. And just all the things that they can do on rope, never touching the ground. And the the sense of security that people gain in that. You know, there's people walk through the door and say, I I am afraid of heights. I don't know how this is going to go. And then they get on rope and they learn to trust their gear and they learn to trust their knowledge. And it's like, wow, I still am not all that fond of heights, but you know what? I'm secure. Mm-hmm. I'm confident.
0: Yeah, manage the fear.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, and, and looking forward, I think we talked a little bit before. You said there were some big things that were coming up, you know, and let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff that's got you fired up.
1: You know, one of the things that PMI is doing that's really exciting, I think, is firefighters, as I mentioned before, um, and professional rescuers of all sort are really kind of in a challenging time of of growth because you think about, let's talk about just about firefighters to start with. Think how much fire departments are responsible for, right? They might be responding to a dumpster fire today, and then after that they'll go straight to a car accident, where they might have to extricate somebody. And from there, they, oh my goodness, I got another call and we're going down the road to a a hazardous materials spill. And and from there, they might end up at a house fire. And and from there, they might... Just think of all of the different things that a firefighter has to respond to. And rope rescue is one of those things. So they're going down in confined spaces with ropes. They're going up on the sides of tanks with ropes. They're going across buildings with ropes. They're having to do all these different kinds of of rescue.
0: Swift water rescue
1: water rescue. Yeah. It's, it's so much knowledge to retain. It's, and, and nobody, nobody can be really, really good at everything. You know, mm-hmm. you, you kind of have to pick something to really excel at. If you really want to excel, you can be good at a bunch of things, but you can't be real good mm-hmm. at a bunch of things. And, and so fire departments are challenged to try to keep up their training. A few years ago, it was kind of quite the rage for all fire organizations to become a technical rope rescue team and to get certified to the NFPA 1670 and 1006 standards as you know technicians for rope rescue. And it's like, wow, that's really cool because you can go through a class and do it. But then next year, do you remember how to do it? If you haven't done one, even next month, if you haven't done one, do you remember how to do it? Yeah. And, and that's the challenge is that they're low frequency, high risk. Events. Mm-hmm. And so the safer that we can make people doing those events, the better off we all are. And so pmi is is has pioneered some some solution kinds of solution based systems. So for years and years, we've had pre-rigged hall systems. That's old news. Um, you can put, three pulleys together or two pulleys together and, and and make a nice haul system to give you a mechanical advantage. That's good, but you got to remember how to do it. So to make it easy, let's pre-rig that haul system and put it in a bag and then you pull it out of the bag and it works. Well, that's really cool, but you still got to attach that to something. And so we've actually come out with some kits that have um, maybe six pieces of gear in them. Mm-hmm. And with those six, six pieces of gear, you can lower somebody to the ground, you can raise somebody to a platform, you can move them sideways, you can you can get somebody out of a predicament wherever they might be in, without a whole lot of extra gear, without remembering how to rig a whole lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So really simplifying those systems um, so that you don't have to go to a rescue with with 17 ropes and 42 carabiners and and 12 pulleys and remember how to put it together because you were just on a swift water rescue this morning and mm-hmm. it's not fresh in your head. So that's one of the exciting things that, that we're doing that I'm most excited about. You
0: were, you were mentioning also that there's a charity initiative going on
1: there in some of the town.
0: And so, you know, let's give a shout out to that crowd and, and for the folks, you know, what are they doing? Who are they supporting? And if somebody was interested in supporting, where, where could they find them?
1: There is a company and a customer of PMI is called Over the Edge. Over the Edge is a company that supports nonprofit organizations by enabling, they connect uh, nonprofit organizations with some of the tallest buildings in some of the biggest cities. And they work with the building to get permission to let the general public repel off of the top of the building. And we're talking like 40-story buildings are better here. We're, We're talking really tall buildings. And people can pay a fee to repel off of the top of this building. It's all managed by over-the-edge staff, so it's all very safe and secure with backup systems and rescue plans and, and all the be- everything's all in place. And the fee that they pay goes to support a charity. So there's one here in Denver actually coming up. I should have looked up the date, but it's over-the-edge. You can look it up on the web. And there's, this time is, is supporting uh, a cancer foundation. And so they do these in cities all over the country. And you can actually, if you have a nonprofit organization, you can contract them to work with you. And and they'll go to your city and work with building owners in that city to select a building and, uh, and let people repel off of it for a fee.
0: Oh, that's cool!
1: Isn't that exciting? Oh yeah, you know
0: I, <laughs> that's we were talking before. That's how I got into the army: is rappelling off the side of a college. Yeah, building. yeah, same, same.
1: And and how often have you do you get that opportunity? Right? I mean, these days, if you start rappelling off the side of a building, somebody's going to get upset, right? <laughs>
0: uh, seems like, <laughs> seems like, you know. And, and I, you know, as as we we kind of come to a close, you know, you you've been around, you know, critical situations and life changing events. What is there a parting advice or guidance that you might offer folks from your experience?
1: Life is a life-changing event, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's nothing about life that is predictable or constant or, um, or safe, really. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it's faith. Faith is, is like my lifeline. That's the rope that I hold on to. And I don't understand how anybody who doesn't have some foundation of faith gets through life. Um I, I think that that understanding and believing in a higher power and understanding and believing that that it's not just all about us. Sorry, it's not just all about us. Life is 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 bigger than any one of us. And so when we when we think about what we do and how we approach what we do, it's so critical, I think, to remember that. There are other people out there, and everybody's got a story, and everybody has a challenge. And the more that we can do to to pick each other up and help each other out, the better all off we're all going to be in the long run.
0: You know, Louis, this has been a lot of fun. We've been looking forward to doing this for some we time. We have. It's and been we, a challenge. And we finally got the schedule <laughs> sorted out. So I really appreciate you taking the time. And for you guys that uh, are not here seeing the facility, I mean... Uh, it Feel is,
1: free to stop by any time. Really, yeah, <laughs>
0: you know it's it's quite the place. So, thanks again, Louis, and, and I appreciate uh, your time.
1: All right, thanks for being here.